0: Our good Father, we acknowledge just our need for you this morning. Uh, We need to hear from you. We need to hear your invitation to life. We need to see the beauty and gift and power and glory and grace of your Son. And we need your Spirit to be at work among us to help us to, to see and to believe and to trust. So be with us in a special way, guiding us, guarding us, leading us to life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you are new to resurrection, we've been looking together through this old letter that has traditionally been called 1 John. And these words were written by someone who some might characterize as Jesus's closest friend on earth. And in our current cultural moment, it's common to hear things like, well, that's what I think about Jesus, and this is what you think about Jesus, but we can never really know uh, who's right. And part of the reason for that is because we are 2,000 years distanced from Him, which invites many different perspectives and makes it difficult to know what's true But John, the writer of this letter, did not have that problem. John spent years with Jesus, personal time, listening, learning, following. His views of Jesus and John's views of the Christian message and the Christian hope were not something that was blurry. It was something that was very clear to him. And that's one of the reasons why letters like these are so valuable, because it helps us to hear from voices in the past like John who say, I have seen something, I have heard something, I have experienced something that is true, and I want to share that with you. And in our passage this morning, John is sharing some lessons that he learned from Jesus himself about the inner workings of the human heart. Many of us think that the Christian life is a matter of what you do, the choices that we make every day about how we live. But John says that the Christian life goes much deeper than that. Many of us think that the Christian life is a matter of what we understand to be true and what we believe. But John shows us that the Christian life goes even deeper than that. What we see before us, is that the Christian life and the life of faith is not just about what you do or what you think, it is about what you love. John's passing along this lesson that he learned from Jesus, who in his own words said, wherever your treasure is, that is where your heart is going to be. In other words, your life, all that you do, all that you say, all that you think, the output of your existence is shaped by what you love. These core desires in your life, what you are committed to you. What Jesus is after is not just our obedience, which is important. What Jesus is after is not just our correct beliefs, which are important as well. What Jesus is after fundamentally is Our hearts, these core loves that shape everything we do. So what we're going to see in these words is that there are two very different directions that our hearts get pulled in. In one direction, our hearts are pulled into placing their affection and their love on things that are temporary and are things that only lead to emptiness. In another direction, our hearts are pulled to a, something that is lasting and eternal and that leads to fullness. And so the question that we're going to be considering this morning is not whether or not, or if you will love, but what will you love? What will we love? And will what we love lead to life and joy and freedom? Or what will is what we love will it lead away from? Those two. And so what I want to do this morning is I just, in our time that we have together, I want to to put these two loves next to each other and put that question before us. What is it that we will love? So this first love we're going to see in verse 15. Short, simple. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, that presents us immediately with two very big problems. And the first is connected to this command to not love something. And so does that rub against this idea that in order for us to be our true selves, in order for us to be our authentic selves, isn't that mean having the freedom to love whatever we want? And so is a voice that looks at something and says, do not love that or do not place your affections on that, is that something that is squashing freedom, is constraining us in in an oppressive and, and dangerous way? Maybe the question comes down to this. Does it really matter what we love? Or put it another way, are there things that we can love? Are there ways that we can love that will actually hurt us? that will actually hurt others, and that will lead us away from life. And I think if we all really think about it, we know the answer to those two questions to be yes. We all know that there are things that the human heart is drawn to that are not good for us. So sometimes this can be as small and as trivial as an extra scoop of ice cream. Sometimes it's as serious as this full-blown addiction. Sometimes it's cutting corners and paying our taxes. Sometimes it's illicit images or even another person's spouse. Sometimes it's wanting and loving to exact revenge on somebody who has hurt us. And sometimes it's, it's wanting power in order to abuse it, in order to serve our own ends. In all of these, the heart is hooked in some way. The heart says, I want that. I desire that. I love that. Even if it's going to be something that hurts me and even if it's going to be something that hurts someone else. It's as Emily Dickinson said long ago, the heart wants what the heart wants. And so... Can it be loving for God to look at us out of compassion and say, do not put your love on these things? And the answer is yes. But that brings us to another problem here when it says, do not love the world or the things in the world Are we really supposed to not care about the world? Are we not supposed to care about the people around us? Or is this a warning not even to to enjoy the things that are in this world? What does it really mean to not love the world? Before we talk about what it does mean, we need to be clear on what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we are not to love the people that are in this world. John is crystal clear on that. In his account of Jesus' life in his gospel. For God so what? For God so loved the world that he gave. There's something about God that looked at the world and said, I love this in such a way that I'm going to give what is most precious to me in order to rescue it, in order to do these people good. So... Not loving the world doesn't mean we are disconnected from people in meaningful and loving ways. It also doesn't mean that we're simply to remove ourselves from the ordinary stuff of this world. There was a a group in the early church that called themselves Gnostics or were named that by other people because their view was basically God is good and stuff is bad. And so there is kind of a sharp division between the spiritual world and the material world. And it's a good question. Is What John's saying here is the things that are spiritual, good, and things that are material are bad. Is he drawing that kind of division? We don't see that in other places of Scripture. So you see James... One of the other followers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. He doesn't change. The Apostle Paul, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. On Friday night, a bunch of us guys got away for a men's camping trip, and it was a great time. Good people, good food, good weather. A good hike. Time with family and friends, watching a sunset, enjoying a good meal, doing meaningful work. Is that what John is saying when he says, don't love the things of the world? He gives us some pretty clear direction in the verses that following. He, He describes what it means to love the world in three very specific ways. If you look at verse 16 on your handout, he talks about the desires of the eyes. He talks about the desires of the flesh and the pride of life. I think a good picture of desires of the eyes is just to think about this phenomenon of just scrolling. Scrolling on our phones, but even just scrolling on our phones is a picture of what our lives are so often doing, of just just scrolling through All that the world has to offer. Recently, I was reading through an article called The Scrolling Soul. And it described it in this way. We can shop for whatever we want. We can study any subject we desire. We can gaze at any object accessible through a search bar. And yet U2's song still rings true. We still haven't found what we're looking for. You're few clicks away from respected academic journals, grotesque pornography. The tweets of world leaders are calling a loved one. Which way will you choose? This restless scrolling soul constantly asks, Am I entertained? Am I liked? Am I amused? Your scrolling is not neutral. You are becoming something. Uh, we don't have to have these electronic devices to be scrolling souls. I think that's just what it means to be human. To be looking and looking and and desiring and and never having enough. You could see it too in what John describes as the desires of the flesh. This constant pursuit, not just of what goes into our eyes, but of physical satisfaction. Think about how addictions work. We pursue something. We crave something. We get it. We respond in some way, but it's not enough. And so we go back. We need more. Our bodies respond. We need more. And it creates this vicious cycle of going back and forth and back and forth where we find ourselves trapped. And, and God in His desire to set us free is pulling us out of that. Is, is addressing the deepest parts of our existence in our hearts. Speaking into what we love. Remember this invitation from the prophet Isaiah. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Why are you spending your money on what is not bread? Why are you giving your labor to that which does not satisfy? Listen to me. Come that your soul may live desires of the eyes, desires of the flesh, pride and possessions, looking at all our stuff, all our achievements, everything we've done and saying this is it. This is where life is found. We have to remember as we think through all of this that God is not just this cruel parent that's trying to squash our desires, but He is inviting us into something much bigger. That us thriving looks like learning to say no to things that take away life and learning to say this wholehearted yes to what will give life. So what is this different and better love that we're told to have? We see it in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what's being talked about in the second half of that verse is not the Father's love for us, but it's parallel. It's our love for the Father. And so what we see here is two competing outlets for our love. That is a love for the world and a love for the Father. We hear that nature hates a vacuum and so does the human heart. Now, remember, John, as he's writing, one of the ways in which he tries to make his point to us is by making contrast. John doesn't like to live in the gray. You get the sense of black and white. So we see light and darkness, truth and lies, good and evil. And he's doing that not to say that gray doesn't exist, but to to draw out the contrast of where our lives are leading And in doing so, he presents these two very different places in which our love can land. In old westerns, you'll often hear sayings like this town isn't big or this town ain't big enough for the two of us. In other words, if you stay here, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) What John is saying is the human heart is not big enough for both of these loves one of them is going to squeeze out the other. They don't live together in this perfect, beautiful harmony. They are at competition, at odds with one another. You're either feeding one and starving the other, or feeding the other and starving the one. It's always happening in our lives. And and John, what he's trying to do out of love for these people that He continually calls His beloved children, his, his dear brothers and sisters, is to say, this is better. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. John's saying, those things will not last. There are things in this world that we are chasing after that lead to emptiness and are temporary. And John is trying to give us something that is so much better. Verse 17, the one who does the will of God abides forever. But here's a question that we all have to ask. How do we become a people who choose that better love, that superior love? That's a question that was being asked by a man named Thomas Chalmers in the 1600s. And he preached a sermon on this text and uh, what I'm about to read is going to be confusing. Uh, it was written by a Puritan almost 400 years ago. So stick with me. I'm going to read it, explain it, and then Jesus is going to give us a much simpler picture of what this looks like. So thank you, Jesus. Here's how we come a people who are marked by love for the Father. He said there are two ways in which we may attempt to displace from the human heart It's love for the world. So, how do we displace this inferior love? How do we get it out? He says either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. In other words, you look at this old love and you're able to see its deficiencies, how it doesn't lead where you want it to go, its emptiness. Or, by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but exchange an old affection for a new one. In other words, on this side, you see something that is so much better that your hands and your heart let go of what's inferior, in order to say yes. He calls that the expulsive power of a new affection. Jesus knows that that's hard for us to understand, so He gives us a picture of it in the parables that we just read. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought that one pearl. In both of these stories that Jesus tells, there is someone who looks at all that they have And they go all in. They sell everything. And you would think that might be a sad or sober moment or they're losing out. But what we read, at least in the first parable, is that this person sells everything with joy. With gladness. How can a selling off and giving up and letting go be this occasion for joy. The simple answer is because each of these know that what they are giving up is of little value compared to what they will gain. This is Jesus saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. When Jesus says take up your cross and follow me, it's not just a call to a miserable existence. There is a call to give up, but it's always accompanied with promises of what we will gain. God's not trying to squash our desires. He's wanting to give us something so much better. There's only one way this happens. And it doesn't get much clearer than 1 John 4. How how does this kind of love begin to well up in our hearts so that these lesser loves begin to be squeezed out and that we experience this life that God offers? John says it like this, we love because He first loved us. As I was thinking about those words, for me, this far removed, having heard them and said them enough, it can. the danger is it becomes a little bit of a spiritual platitude, something I've heard again and again. And I was trying to think of what it might be like for John to write those words. For, for John, who stood by Jesus' mother as his, his Lord, his master, his best friend, was there between two thieves, beaten, Bloodied, naked, dying. These these things we only hear about, he was there and he witnessed it in all its brutality. And and having that image burned into his mind as the years go by, I don't think he forgot about that. Well, Over time, the, the clarity of what that meant sinking into his soul, this sense of, He did that for me. He did that for us. And and as John went back and thought through Jesus and began to grasp the gravity of, of what this gift was like, of what his God had done for him, to be able to sum it up in such a simple way, we love, I love because he first loved us. moves him to a place that says there's nothing that compares to him. Or as the Apostle Paul says, I count everything is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, For every one of us, there is an invitation this morning and a warning um, to to stop scrolling through everything that the world has to offer and to sit at the foot of the cross and to remember and to enjoy the gift that God has to offer us and simply to say with this next song we're about to sing, I'd rather have Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I pray that You would help us to see more clearly this morning and in the days ahead what Paul said was the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That You might fill us with a love for You that would squeeze out any inferior loves that would, that would try to choke out what would lead us to life. God, we want to know you more. We want to see you more clearly. We want to walk as your people and help us to be heralds of this good news of great love and for us to love others as you have loved us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.